Turn to John chapter 13 with me. And I'm going to read verses 21 through 30. John 13, 21 through 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This is God's word. All right, so my outline there is verses 21 and 22. We see Jesus kind of announcing this thing that's going to happen to everybody at the table. And remember, we're still right here at the dinner table on this most significant of nights for the disciples. He has just washed their feet and taught them the significance or the meaning of the foot washing. And now he's going to deal with Judas. The time has come to confront this traitor in their midst. Verses 23 through 26, we see Jesus identifying Judas as the betrayer. But he does this in a very private way with just one of his disciples. And then finally, in verses 27 to 30, it's like Jesus activates the plot that was already there in Judas's heart. And again, he speaks to the whole table and there's, a, there's yet more misunderstanding. So that's basically what's going on here. But I want to start by talking to you a little bit about treason. The treason is a fascinating topic. It, it, treason fascinates us as people because... Betrayal is, is inherently fascinating, but it, when it's done on this grand national scale, um, there's something that's just extra interesting about it. What would motivate a person to do this, and how do we handle it when it happens? Um, probably we could all name one or two famous traitors down through history. We have, going all the way back to 44 BC, we have uh, a man named Marcus Junius Brutus. Does the name Brutus ring any bells for anybody in here? If you know your Roman history, he was part of the, he was part of the um, plot to assassinate Julius Caesar. Um, and, and he's a main character in Shakespeare's play about that, um, about that plot. Then we have Benedict Arnold, which is the one that probably most Americans associate with, uh, with treason. Um, does anyone know what Benedict Arnold did, what his crime was, or who he was, or which war he was in? What was that? He was ready to give up the fort. Yeah, there we go. It was during the Revolutionary War, the American Revolutionary War. He was a, an American officer who collaborated with the British 
and is therefore to this day known as a, as a traitor. And then we have another one that's, that's really interesting. And it's, what's also interesting is the way that the names of these different men down through history have become synonymous with the act of treason itself. Like Judas, the name Judas, it means, if you call someone Judas, you're calling them a betrayer, right? Well, there's another word that's not so common, but it's the, anyone ever heard the, the, the word quizzling? You ever heard that? Jack is nodding his head. There's a, there's a Norwegian diplomat in World War II who actually collaborated with the Nazis. His name was uh, Vidkun Quisling. And so to this day, we use that word, Quisling, to mean uh, kind of someone who's sneaky and, and betrayal, uh, who's participating in betrayal. Um, so I say all that to point out the fact that for centuries, treason has been considered the very worst crime. And it's been punished in, in the very harshest ways possible. Um, the poet Dante puts, puts traitors all the way down in the lowest circle of hell, the ninth circle of hell, if you've ever read his Inferno. Um, and to this day, actually in theory, a person can be put to death in the U.S. if they're convicted of treason. That is still possible, although it hasn't happened in a very long time. So... I also thought it was interesting that, that treason is the only crime that's explicitly defined in the United States Constitution. It's mentioned in the Constitution as, as a crime, and it's the only one. So we have to ask ourselves, what is it about treason that needs to be punished so harshly? What is it about this act that's so, that's so heinous? Well, the first answer that's pretty, the pretty obvious answer is that it endangers not just one person or one group of people, but it actually endangers everybody in a society, especially in a time of war, right? Um, and then the second, the second thing is that treason is really, when you boil it down, it's, it's sort of like an attempt to murder an entire nation. It's like an act of murder against your own country that you've sworn allegiance to, that you've benefited from. So it is betrayal on a national scale is treason and it's awful and it, and it can't happen for a nation to continue to function. However, think about this. Sometimes, sometimes treason works, right? And what do we call that? When treason works, when it accomplishes its, pers- its purpose. We, we call it a revolution, right? Isn't that true? So Napoleon Bonaparte said once, treason is a matter of dates. And what he meant was that when traitors are successful, we know them as revolutionaries. We don't think of them as traitors. It also depends on who writes the history, right? You think of Benedict Arnold wasn't a traitor to the British. He was a, he, he was a hero. He was one of their spies. And our founding fathers to the British weren't heroes. They were traitors. So it also depends on your perspective. But what I thought was really interesting, when you really think about it, Christianity is the only religion that I'm aware of that began with an act of treason. Treason is part of the, um, it, 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 the founding story of Christianity, and I don't know of any other religion of which that can be said. So plenty of, plenty of nations have been birthed through successful treason, which is just called revolution, but never a religion until Christianity. So... Jesus hangs on a cross as a direct result of this betrayal from within his most trusted inner circle. So I think we need to look closely at this moment that's recorded right here for us in John. So first of all, 
in verses 21 and 22. What we see about Jesus is that in his betrayal, he's both permissive and in control. First of all, he's permissive. So the first thing that's interesting here is that Jesus is so sure of what's about to happen, and yet he doesn't do anything to stop it. Look at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now that word truly that he says twice there, does anyone know what that word is in the Greek? It's amen. He's saying the word amen. He says, amen, amen, I say to you. What he's doing is he's putting himself under oath. Says he testified, he's putting himself under oath. And Jesus, we say, we say amen at the end of our prayers, but in the New Testament, Jesus is the only one who ever starts by saying amen. And what that means is that he talks about the future like it's already happened. This isn't just a premonition of something he's suspicious of. It's not like I think I think there's maybe some betrayal in the room. This isn't a premonition. It's as certain as if it's already happened. So he says, amen, amen, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Now, if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that someone was gonna sell you out, that someone was gonna hand you over to your enemies, what would you do? What would you do? We know what we would do. Yeah, we know the steps we would take, whatever it takes to avoid that, right? Would you spend one more second in a room with a person like that? No, not a chance. I know I wouldn't. It's natural to try to stop bad things from happening, isn't it? So what's happening here is that Jesus, Jesus isn't being taken off guard by this. Jesus has known in advance. It's maybe the only time in history when an act of treason was known in advance and then it was confronted and then it was still allowed to succeed. Jesus is fully aware of what Judas is up to. He knows his heart, and yet he doesn't stop him. He merely announces what he knows to the rest of the disciples. He says it publicly, but he doesn't try to stop it. And the point here is that Jesus allows, he allows people to betray him. He does. How many of us here in this room would even be alive if he didn't? Okay? So that's our first point this morning. He, Jesus permits this thing to happen, but he's also in control. He's not a victim of this plot. He's actually in control of the situation. It says the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Have you ever been, have you ever been a, over Thanksgiving dinner and someone in the room said something incredibly awkward and then there's just nothing to say after that? <laughs> And you just look at each other. That's what's happening. You can picture it. They're speechless. They're speechless by this. And what's interesting here is that so many times in his life, Jesus has actually spoken in parables, right? And, not, and even when he's not speaking in parables, he still says things in ways that are, that are not that clear all the time. But here, he's not being vague or tricky. Is he? He's, he's actually saying this the simplest way that it could be said when you think about it. It's, it's, it's just right on the surface. 
And yet it's so far beyond anybody's imaginations that it leaves them speechless. They don't even know what to say. So here's the point, though. Jesus is talking like someone who not only knows the future, but is controlling it. You see that? Jesus is telling them something that's going to happen, but there's also an element of his sovereignty in what he's saying. So the point here is that Jesus reveals what is really going on in our hearts, and that's how we know that he's in control of the situation. Now, I want you to look these two things about what Jesus, what we see from him here, that he's permissive, he's allowing this to happen, but he's also in control. Look at how these two things are related. Jesus is permissive, he's allowing it because he is in control, right? He doesn't try to stop Judas because Judas is doing God's will. He's actually doing the thing that God meant for him to do. The reason why he's in this inner circle is so that he could commit this act of betrayal as bad and as, as senseless as it is. And that leads us to just an incredible truth. It's not that easy for us to wrap our heads around, but it's, it's there, which is that God's goodness is so big and so invincible that he even uses Satan and the sin of treasonous friends for his purposes. Nothing is beyond the sovereignty of God, even the worst sin. And this is it. This is the worst sin. And even this is within his sovereignty. This, this doctrine, this is part of the doctrine of providence, theologians would call it. And it's not that easy to accept. And if you, are, if you or to even contemplate, if you need for further reference, if you'd like some, something to read, there's this little book by John Piper called Spectacular Sins. And it's all about how God has worked down through history in the, in the acts of treason and in, the, in these spectacular sins to bring about his purpose and his plan to save the world. And in this book, um, Piper writes, writes this. He says, uh, sin and evil, no matter how bad, never nullify the purposes of God. Let me read that again. Sin and evil, no matter how bad, never nullify the purposes of God. More than that, these spectacular sins do not just fail to nullify God's purpose. They succeed in making his purpose come to pass. So God's providence is so grand and so powerful and so all-encompassing that he takes something like this and he uses it and he turns it to his purpose. And if he hadn't, then Jesus would never have risen from the dead and we would still be lost in our sins. So Piper writes that the, the fact that God is sovereign over sin and evil is actually a doctrine that God uses to put steel in the spine of his people to help us endure suffering, knowing that whatever it is, even if we can't understand it, we can trust that God will use it. Do you see? Because he used it in Jesus's life, and so he can use it in our life. So in other words, if Jesus can't stop Judas from betraying him, then he can't be God. If he was just a victim of this plot. 
And more importantly, if he, if he couldn't stop Judas from betraying him, then he can't protect or save any of us. But if he is in control of even the worst thing that ever happened, and this was it, then we can trust that nothing in our lives is beyond his control, even our sin. Does that make sin a good thing? No. But can he bring good things out of it? Absolutely. Praise God that he can. Next, let's look at Jesus and this private moment that he shares with John. John doesn't name himself, but he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And this is the, he says it a couple more times here towards the end of the book of John. This is the first time he's referred to himself in this way in the gospel of John. And I love it. I love it because he's, hum, he's, he's too humble to name himself. And he's not saying he's the only disciple that Jesus loved, but he does say, I know he loved me. And that's how he refers to himself by the love of his savior. And so he's reclining. He has this place of honor right next to Jesus. Remember, they would be laying on their left side with their feet out behind them around a U-shaped table, most likely. And so if you're reclining like that right next to somebody and he's right behind you, you could just kind of turn around, lay your head back against his chest and ask him a question. And that's what happens here. Peter motions to him, hey, ask him who he's talking about. And so he does. And this is a private moment. I think the idea here in verse 26 is that when Jesus answered, it is the, the, my betrayer is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread. He's saying, he's saying that only to John. He's not saying that to the whole table. It's just between him and John. But I want you to see two things about the, what Jesus does here. And the first thing is that in identifying his betrayer, Jesus fulfills prophecy. And the second thing is that simply that he feeds him. So let's take the first of those, that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy by what he does here. And I think there are a few questions that we should be asking at this point when we come to this place in this story. And the big question in my mind is this, why would Jesus not only tolerate, but seem to welcome betrayal by one of his closest friends. And the first answer in the life of Jesus, the first answer is always the same, and it has to do with his relationship to the Old Testament. What do I mean? Well, back in verse 18, just, just before this, Jesus has just said, the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. The scripture will be fulfilled. That's the Old Testament. So I want you to think about this, okay? Jesus is a man living in time, not unlike us, with the same physical needs and pains and joys and sorrows that human life entails. But every time, just think of it, every time he unrolls a passage of the prophet Isaiah, every time he overhears a family singing a psalm on their way to the synagogue. Every time he catches a glimpse of the temple on the other side of the city, he's reading or overhearing or staring directly at shadows of his own life. Think about it. For years, he's sung Psalm 41. It was a 
song in their hymnal, Psalm 41. He sung it ever since he was a child. And there is a line in the song that goes like this. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Since he was a boy, Jesus has been singing about his own betrayal. And now it's here. And he's not about to resist what has to happen because he knows what it leads to. Every time you hear Jesus saying, the scripture must be fulfilled. He's saying, this is a key moment in the story of how I am saving the world. This is a important moment in that timeline. Another way of getting at this is, is that just to look at the fact that if this doesn't happen, if he's not betrayed like this by this man, we can't be saved. And Jesus will always do what's necessary for us to be saved. The timing is important too, when you think about it. He has to be the Passover lamb, right? And wouldn't it make more sense for Judas to betray him a little more quietly? I mean, he's always walking on these country roads. Wouldn't it make sense just to make it look like robbers? Just kill him quietly away from the city? No, it has to happen tonight. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's taking control of the timeline. The second thing here, this is so significant for us, is that he feeds Judas. He feeds him. He feeds him. Look at this. In verse 26, so when he had dipped the morsel of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. He handed him bread. And look how personal this is. He knows this man is about to betray him. We already said we're not spending one more second in the presence of someone we know is betraying us. Jesus not only doesn't make him leave yet, he gives him something to eat. He doesn't, you know, when, when John asks him, Lord, who, who is it? Who's the one? John knows it's not him. Peter knows it's not him, but they don't know anything. They can't be sure. Jesus has just dropped this bombshell. They can't be sure that of anything besides what's in their heart. John's sitting there thinking, I know I'm not going to do it. Maybe he's thinking, Peter doesn't have it in him, right? Maybe. Peter's crazy about Jesus. He loves Jesus. He's not going to do it. But, but they don't know who it is. And so instead of standing up and pointing, this one, right? Or shouting, raising his voice, it's him. He doesn't even seem like he frowns at Judas because they don't know. He, he says, he gives him food and then he talks to him and they still don't know that it's Judas because Jesus is being that calm and that gracious about this. Not only that, but it was also a token of honor to be handed a piece of food by the host. So he dipped a piece of bread into this common bowl. And, and when the host would do this and hand it to someone, it was like give, handing someone the, the glass of champagne for the toast, right? It was, it was an honor. This would, this would have honored the very person who was going to betray him. So of course they were confused. 
because he had just paid this honor to Judas. So the point here is that Jesus identifies his betrayer. His identification of the man who's going to do this thing is by giving him food. He feeds him. And the larger principle here in what Jesus does, how he treats Judas, is that Jesus is gracious even when people betray him. Jesus is gracious even when people betray him and praise God. Because every time we choose sin over Jesus, it's an act of treason. It is. But Jesus responds with grace, feeding us with his own flesh and blood. And even turns our sin to his own purposes. How good, how good he is. When we see Jesus clearly like this, when we see how good he is and how gracious and how gentle the treason can't stay in our hearts, can it? When we get a taste of Jesus, we find that we no longer want to sin. And that's how he takes the treason out of us. He doesn't smash us like we deserve. He doesn't stand up at the table and point and condemn. I am just like Judas. And when I act like Judas, Jesus treats me just like he treated him. He hands me something to eat. And that brings us to our third point this morning which is the activation of the plot. For lack of a better term, Jesus is the one who's kind of setting this in motion tonight. Verses 27 and 28. Then after after Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. And so at this point, we're back to speaking to the whole room. So he's identified Judas privately to John. But now he's saying in front of everyone, what you are going to do, do quickly. Three things I want you to see here in this section. In the betrayal of Jesus, we see, first of all, Judas's doom. And then we see the disciples' ignorance. And then we see the disciples' salvation. So let's take, first of all, Judas's doom. Have you ever read this verse and stopped and considered how awful these four words are? Satan entered into him. Have you ever thought about it? It's like something out of a horror movie. Jesus hands him a piece of bread to the man who is going to hand him over. And it seems like when Judas takes that bread and puts it in his mouth, that is when it says that is when Satan enters into Judas. I mean, can we even imagine the horror of that? So two things happen at the same time. One, Judas is handed over to the enemy. And number two, this is the moment he's cast out from the fellowship of the disciples. Jesus excommunicates 
Judas by feeding him and gives his soul over to Satan. This whole thing reminds me of the first chapter of Romans where Paul says that as a result of idolatry, God gives people over to their sin. And this is actually the judgment of God that he removes the restraints and lets people have what they think they want and it destroys them. That's what Paul says is the judgment of God. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes about excommunication, putting someone out of fellowship as a form of handing men over to Satan that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Same words as here. So whatever Judas thought was going to happen, whatever his motives were, this was certainly not part of the picture. This wasn't part of his plan. He planned to to make his 30 pieces of silver. Maybe he planned to force Jesus's hand. We don't know. We don't have the insight clearly into his motives, but there's no way that Judas meant to be possessed or taken over by Satan himself. This is awful. So the point here is that the worst thing that can happen to a person is to be handed over to the evil in our hearts. At the beginning, we looked at the fact that Jesus allows people to betray him. Well, thank God that the opposite is also true, right? There are plenty of times when God intervenes to prevent us from sinning. I have my stories. I'm sure you do too. And until now, what has been happening is that Jesus has restrained the treason that was there in Judas's heart. But now he steps out of the way and lets Judas do what was in there. And we talk a lot about freedom, but we really desperately do not want God to remove the restraints of his grace, do we? Let's look at their ignorance, the disciples. This happens to Judas. His time as one of the disciples is up. He's done. He is no longer one of the disciples. But they still don't know what's going on. As usual. I love these guys. <laughs> Jesus, uh, Jesus is always asking them, do you, do you get it? Do you understand? And they're like, no. And... <laughs> Um, and, he, and he's always saying, it's okay. He'll understand it later. It's all right. The thing that's highlighted here in the disciples' response is their uncertainty. It's like, it's the big theme of this whole passage. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. No one knew. I mean, that, I think that includes John. John's writing it. He's at the table. No one at the table knows, including John. And John was the one that Jesus told it's Judas, and John's like, it's Judas what? <laughs> right? That, that's what's happening. So the issue here is that our understanding of what Jesus is doing, our comprehension is not in any way necessary for God's plan to move forward. You don't have to understand what God is doing in your life for it to work and for it to benefit you and to be a blessing to you. In fact, most of the time, 
you will look back and you will say, oh, I understand now about the things that were happening then. I just still don't get what's happening right now. At least that's been my experience. And that is one way of understanding Paul when he writes that we walk by faith and not by sight. Correct? Now, here's what's interesting. Even after Jesus identifies his betrayer, the disciples are still lost. But look at what they think Jesus is telling Judas. It's in verse 29. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. They're in the middle of a festival. Or the other thing that some thought was that that maybe Judas should go and make a donation and give something to the poor. So first of all, buy what we need for the feast. Well, thousands and thousands of lambs were sold every year during Passover for the various meals that were part of the tradition. Thousands of lambs. There was also a Sabbath day that was starting in less than 24 hours from when this is happening. And you're not allowed to buy or sell on the Sabbath. So maybe Jesus was telling Judas, go ahead and get a, get a head start and go buy us a lamb for our next meal. Maybe that's what's happening. Or maybe he's saying, go give something to the poor. Now, what's interesting about Passover, is there was a form of charity during the Passover that was unique. It was seasonal and it had to do with the, with the festival. During this Jewish holiday, there was a tradition called flower for Passover. And wealthier people were expected to give charitably to the poor so that everyone could afford to buy the ingredients for their feast. Okay, nobody could, would be left out this way. Flower for Passover meant that nobody would be left out of the feast. So these were the two things. Maybe he's saying, go buy a lamb. Maybe he's saying, go give something to the poor. Obviously, the disciples are way off the mark, but that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter at all because God's plan is moving forward regardless of what they think is happening. We don't have to understand what God is doing to benefit it and praise, to benefit from it and praise God that that's true. One more thing to point out is their salvation. Look at the result of this moment, okay? In verse 30, after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out and it was night. He's out in the darkness. And we can feel what that means just beyond the fact that it was 10 p.m. We feel it. He's out in the dark and they're in the light with Jesus. Now, all 11 of the disciples who weren't traitors are left in the room with Jesus. But is it over? Is this it? Is this the end of the story? Was the point just to get rid of the traitor? This is, this is not even close to the end of the ordeal, right? It's just kind of the beginning in some, in some ways. So there's more to come. And the point here is that it's, it's good. It's a good thing that the 11 other disciples are loyal. That's a good thing. But it's not the end. They're not safe yet. They're not saved yet. Their sin hasn't been dealt with yet. 
For that, they're going to need a better meal than the one they're sharing right now. Do you remember a year or two earlier in the life of Jesus, John 6.51 tells us that he said this, he said this thing that was just really, really, it was the hardest thing he ever said. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. John 6.51, he says, the bread that I will give, that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And here's what we learn. Avoiding sin, being loyal to Jesus, won't save you. Avoiding sin won't save you. We actually need to feast on Jesus to be saved. That's what they needed, and that's what we need. And so it's a great thing for us that Jesus is always giving his life away. And he's still doing it now. I want to leave you looking at the strangeness of this scene. Nothing goes the way you would think if, someone, if somebody knows that there's a betrayer in the midst. When has a king ever known about a treasonous plot and not tried to stop it? When has anyone ever knowingly fed someone who was about to betray them? Why would Judas tell, why would Jesus tell Judas to follow through on something so awful and unjust? That's what he says. Go do it. Do it now. Why would he tell him to follow through? What is going on here? It only makes sense when we recognize what Jesus is actually doing. The point was not to expose Judas's treason in order to stop it, but in order to make it happen tonight. What you are going to do, do quickly. But what was Judas hurrying to do? Not to buy a lamb, but to sell one. Jesus is actually telling Judas, go and sell me. I'm what we need for the feast. This is the year we fulfill the scriptures. Give me to the poor. That's what he's saying. Jesus was willingly betrayed so that traitors like you and me can be forgiven and feast with him in heaven. Let's pray.